The following sermon, entitled The Godless Brought Nigh by the Blood of Christ, 12th in the series on the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of February 20th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We will read the whole of the chapter. The text for this evening's sermon is verses 11-18. through Due to the length, I will not reread those, so please pay close attention to the words that make up the text. Ephesians chapter 2. This is the infallible Word of our God. And you hath He quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through 
the Spirit. We end our Scripture reading at that point. One of the greatest evils of this fallen world is the division, segregation, strife, and enmity that abounds in it. We see that among men. That's true when we look at the world all around us. There's all manner of segregation and fighting. There is the political polarization. There is the social elitism and snobbery. There is the racial tension and segregation. We see that in the world around us. But we do not have to look out in the world to find that either. We can see those very things right here in the church. This is our experience. Within the church, we allow various differences. We have natural differences even to become the occasion for all manner of division. They say again, this is one of the greatest evils of this fallen world. And that division is rooted in something far deeper. The division that we experience between men is ultimately the fruit of our separation from God, at least by nature, on account of our sin. For that is indeed one of the great effects of sin. Sin is like a wedge that divides us from God. And we see that already in the beginning when after the fall, Adam was banished from the garden. Banished from the immediate presence of his God. And so too, by nature, we are strangers. We are aliens from our God. But now all of that is really the dark background against which the beauty of this text shines forth. Because here in this passage of Scripture, we have the answer to all that division, all that segregation, all that enmity and strife. For our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ brings an end to it. He brings reconciliation and peace. And what is so amazing, so wonderful about this reconciliation and peace that Christ brings is that it addresses both of the problems we just mentioned. It addresses that vertical enmity, that separation we have from God on account of our sins, at least by nature. And in doing so, it also addresses the horizontal division and segregation that we experience among men. That is to say, a part of Christ's saving work is that He reconciles us not only to our God so that we now have peace with Him, but in doing so, He also reconciles us to one another so that we can now have peace as, a, as the body of Christ. What a tremendous blessing. And the fact that this is such a great blessing helps us to see how this fits 
into the overall book as we make our way through this letter to the Ephesians which is setting before us again and again and again the blessedness of the church of Christ. And a part of that is what we look at tonight. You Looking at Ephesians 2, verses 11-18 through 18, using our theme, using as our theme, the godless brought nigh by the blood of Christ. The godless brought nigh by the blood of Christ. First, we look at that vertical reconciliation. Second, at the horizontal unity. And then third, at the overall blessedness that we find in this. In this passage, Paul is going to set forth before us the blessed peace that we have with our God. And what makes that so amazing, especially for these Ephesian Christians to whom he's writing, was their past wretchedness as those who were separated from God on account of their sin. That's what Paul begins by describing here, especially in the opening verses. And he does that by making a comparison between these Gentiles to whom he's writing and the Jews on the other hand. That comes out in verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. The circumcision in the flesh made by hands referring to the Jews. So we have a contrast between the Gentiles and the Jews. And Paul brings this up because he's writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation there in the city of Ephesus. He's writing mindful of their background that these are people who came largely out of paganism, out of heathenism as those who worshipped the goddess Diana, as those who used much of their money to buy all these books so that they could be practiced in black magic and sorcery. That's, that's the past of these Gentile Christians to whom he's writing. And there's a stark contrast between that and whatever Jewish Christians there were and the background that they had. And that's what Paul is, has in view. As he speaks of their past wretched condition, he describes it first of all from an external point of view. He, meant, he refers to these Christians in verse 11 as Gentiles in the flesh. When he calls them, he's referring to the fact that they were uncircumcised. Their very flesh showed that they were not Jews. And that was a part of their wretchedness. Because remember, circumcision throughout the Old Testament was a token of the covenant of grace. It was a seal of the righteousness of faith. And therefore, to not have that mark was to indicate that they did not have any of the realities either. That is indeed wretchedness. And Paul goes on, he says next about them who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And what Paul is getting at here is that those who were circumcised in the flesh made by hands, that is the Jews, used this term uncircumcised as a term of derision. That they would use to label the Gentiles. This was a part of the reproach that the Gentiles would bear from 
the Jews who, at least from an outward point of view, belong to the people of God. But those two things are just what's on the surface. That's just the external part of their wretchedness. Paul transitions from that to talking about their internal spiritual wretchedness. And that this especially is what Paul wants to get at here. And that's what comes out in verse 12 as he continues to describe them. And to give a summary before we dive into the language of the text, he describes them as those who were Christless, churchless, friendless, hopeless, and in a word, godless. That's misery. First of all, they were Christless. Paul begins that at time ye that at that time ye were without Christ. That is, not only did they not know the truth concerning Christ, not only did they not know Christ personally as their Savior, they never even heard of Him. They had no knowledge of the promised Messiah. And that's misery. Because is not one of our greatest joys the knowledge that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ? But they did not have Christ at all. And not only were they Christless, they were churchless. We say that in light of the next thing he says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And the significance of the nation of Israel we are familiar with. In Deuteronomy 7, we read of God saying that the nation of Israel would be His own peculiar people, His covenant nation. That He would gather His people out of this nation. And that there were many attendant privileges that came along with this. Not least of which was that the oracles of God had been committed to them. They had received God's own revelation of Himself. And now, Paul, writing to these Gentiles Christians, is saying, in times past, you had nothing to do with this. You were aliens from the commonwealth or the republic of Israel. You were outsiders. You had no part in this. Which is to say, you were churchless. Because Old Testament Israel was really the manifestation of the visible body of Christ in the Old Testament dispensation. And thus what Paul is saying here is, from an outward point of view, you had nothing to do with the body and the bride of Christ. That was a part of their misery. But not only were they Christless and churchless, they were also friendless because he goes on to say, and strangers from the covenants of promise. And now Paul speaks of covenants in the plural because he has in view the many reaffirmations of that one covenant of grace all throughout the Old Testament. God established His covenant with Noah and then He reaffirmed it in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He reaffirmed it with David and there are many other examples. So there's one covenant of grace, but God reaffirmed it again and again and again. But always all throughout, we see that the heart of that covenant is His promise to be our God so that we are His people. That's what Paul has in view when he speaks of the covenants of promise. The promise of the covenant is that He will be our God. That He will have us as His people. That we can know Him as our covenant friend. We can have fellowship with Him. And Paul says about these Gentiles, you were strangers. 
from the covenants of promise. You did not know God as friend. They were friendless. And in that connection, they were hopeless. That fourthly. And that follows. Paul says, having no hope. And that follows from what he just said about the promises because our hope is really built on the promises of God. Hope in a certain sense is a knowledge of those promises and a confidence that they will surely come to pass. And how crucial such hope is for us. Hope is that anchor of the soul that gives us confidence regarding the future, knowing that what awaits us ultimately serves our good and that God has in view our greatest good, eternal life with Him. But those to whom he's writing, at least in times past, had no hope. For them, there was only fear and despair. So they were Christless, churchless, friendless, hopeless. And in one word, they were godless. That's where he ends in verse 12. And without God in the world. Oh yes, they had their own idol gods. But the goddess Diana, the god of sorcery, could do nothing for them. And oh yes, they had a knowledge about the true God of heaven and earth. But they exchanged the truth concerning God for a lie. They worshipped the creation rather than the Creator, all the while suppressing that knowledge. And thus, they were without God in the sense that they were still separated from Him. Their sin was still a wedge dividing them from Jehovah God. And that meant they were subject to punishment. Judgment is the only thing that was going to come upon them. They were godless. The Apostle Paul could not describe their past wretchedness any more darkly than he does here. But that is only the dark background that highlights the good news that this passage of Scripture sets forth. Because you see, there's a sharp contrast between their past and the present joy that they now have. And we see that contrast even in the very wording of the text. Verse 13 begins, but now in Christ. And those words, but now, are a deliberate contrast to the expression he's been using in time past. That's what you were, but this is what you have now in Christ. And that contrast comes out even in the language of verse 13, that ye who were sometimes afar off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. And what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is that these Gentiles had been reconciled with God. That they had been brought nigh unto Him. That they now have peace with Him. And Paul brings that out in a number of different ways here in this passage, verse 16, he says that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. So, reconciliation unto God. That is, God in and through Christ had taken that wedge that was sin 
and removed it. He's taken away the cause for that enmity that otherwise existed. So that whereas before there was enmity between the two, between God and these Gentiles, there was now peace. And that's where the Apostle Paul goes next in verse 17, that he came and preached peace to you which were afar off. Peace here is peace with God. And this peace, understand, is not a mere cessation from war and fighting, but it goes above and beyond that. Peace here is the fullness of life with God. It's having God as our friend. It's enjoying fellowship and communion with this God. Paul also goes on to speak of having access to God. That's verse 18. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Access here is the right to approach our God without fear of being consumed by Him in His wrath, but with the confidence that we are going to be received by Him in His favor. This access is what gives us the right to pray to Him. To pour out our hearts unto Him. To ask for grace and mercy to help us in time of need. And all of this is really an elaboration on that Opening statement in verse 13, you who were afar off have been brought nigh. Brought nigh first and foremost to God. Before, you were Christless. Now, you are in Jesus Christ. United to Him by grace alone, through faith alone. Before, you were churchless. But now, you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Before you were friendless. But now you may know Jehovah God is your friend. You can speak with Him and hear Him speak back to you. You were hopeless. But now you have the hope of eternal life. of life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And all that is to say, before you were godless. But now, you've been reconciled unto Him. You have peace with this God. That's astounding. And it raises the question, how could any of this be possible? And Paul tells us all throughout this text, it's only in and through, and on the basis of Christ's saving work. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And when it speaks of the blood of Christ, it's obviously pointing us to the shedding of Christ's blood at the cross of Calvary. It's pointing us to His meritorious work that He performed on our behalf. And that then is the basis for this Salvation for this peace we now have with God. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that our sin has been removed. That great separator has been taken away so that we now have peace with God. And that's why the text even calls Christ our peace. That's the language of verse 14. For He is our peace. Christ is the Prince of Peace. At whose birth the angels sang, Peace and goodwill 
to men. Because He's the one who brings this about. It's Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only in and through Him that we can have this peace with God. It's implied in the wording of the text and the original verse 14 is stronger. The idea is, for He Himself is our peace. And the idea is, He alone is our peace. What the law could not accomplish. What the glimmerings of natural light were not sufficient for. What human merit could never achieve is found in Christ and in Him alone. He is our peace. And He brings us into the enjoyment of that by His Word and Spirit. That's where the text brings us next in verse 17, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off. It refers to the preaching. Because it's by means of the preaching that the Spirit works faith in our hearts and strengthens that faith. And then it's by means of that faith that we then receive and enjoy this peace. And notice, even if only briefly, that Christ Himself is the one who proclaims this peace. He's the subject. Verse 17, and came. Who is the subject? It's talking about Christ though. Christ came and Christ preached peace. And we might wonder, does the Apostle Paul have his history wrong here? Christ never went to Ephesus while He was still alive and on this earth. What is Paul thinking here? Well, implied in this is that Christ speaks through His ambassadors. It's through the preaching that we hear the voice of our Good Shepherd. We could say much more about that, but it's really a side point to the overall point we're making that Christ is the One who established who gives us this peace. He does so by means of the preaching. And it's ultimately the Spirit that makes that Word effective. And that's why Paul mentions the Spirit as well. Verse 18, for through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. It's the Spirit who draws us powerfully and irresistibly unto God through the door that is Christ. It's the Spirit who takes all the blessings, including peace, that Christ has earned for us and applies them to us by His sovereign and efficacious work. It's in this way that the Gentiles who were afar off were made nigh. But now what does any of this have to do with us? How are we to take this passage of Scripture and apply it to us? A passage that's talking about Gentiles who grew up as heathens and pagans, but were brought into the church and ultimately saved by God's grace. Well, from a certain point of view, we are like those Gentiles. And that to my knowledge, no one here from a racial, ethnic point of view is a Jew. Thus, we do rejoice 
that we live in the New Testament and that salvation is not only for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And that many of our forefathers would have had an experience like this. They grew up in heathendom as pagans, but the light of the Gospel was brought to them and God used it to bring them to faith so that we have now grown up the way we have. It's true for many of us, but there are some here who did not grow up in the church. Who were brought in from the outside who can identify all the more with these Gentiles to whom Paul is writing. So, from a certain point of view, we are very much so like the Gentiles. On the other hand, we can also identify with the Jews. At least those of us who grew up in the church for we grew up hearing all about Christ. We were a part of that church. We know all about the covenant, God's friendship with us. We had hope, which is to say, we had God set before us and His glory proclaimed. And insofar as that's true of us, the response to that should be humble gratitude. That's where the Canons of Dort point us. Canons of Dort heads 3-4, Article 7, has a word for those of us who've grown up in the church. Article 7 is all about God's sovereignty and where He sends the Gospel at different times. Article 7 we read, this is on page 68 in the back of our Psalters by the way, this mystery of His will, God discovered that is revealed to but a small number under the Old Testament. Under the New, the distinction between various peoples having been removed, He reveals Himself to many without any distinction of people. The cause of this dispensation is not to be ascribed to the superior worth of one nation above another, nor of their making a better use of the light of nature, but results wholly from the sovereign good pleasure and unmerited love of God. So the reason for it is because of God's sovereign good pleasure. But now, here comes a word of application. Hence, they to whom so great and so gracious a blessing is communicated above their desert, or rather notwithstanding their demerits, are bound to acknowledge it with humble and grateful hearts. That's the application for us who grew up in the church. Humble and grateful hearts recognizing we deserve just the opposite to be true of us. But now whether we can identify more with the Gentiles who were brought in from the outside or with the Jews who grew up hearing it as part of the church visible, ultimately this applies to all of us from a spiritual point of view. Because from a spiritual point of view, we were all aliens and strangers to God. We were all separated from Him on account of our own sinfulness and we deserve to be cast into a bottomless pit. And think of that illustration for a moment. It means you never stop falling farther and farther and farther away from God. But we've been brought nigh 
we've been reconciled unto our God so that we have peace with this God so that we can now be close to this God. And as those who are the objects of this salvation, as those who have received this tremendous blessing, should we not want others to taste of it as well? Say that because there's a temptation for us to think this only applies to us. That this good news is only for people just like us. This was a temptation for the Jews. For Paul says of the Jews in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, that they forbid us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The Jews did not want the Gospel going to the Gentiles. That's why they were always stirring up trouble when they saw Paul proclaiming that good news to the Gentiles. But now before we cast judgment on those Jews, we have to ask the question, are we really any different? Or is it the case that in our hearts we suppose there's really no point trying to witness to those atheists out there? We're really just wasting our breath if we try to evangelize the godless who deny Jesus Christ. One so far as that's what's in our hearts and what's in our thinking, let this passage be the corrective. For our God is able to take those who are Christless, churchless, friendless, hopeless, and godless and bring them nigh unto Him by the blood of Jesus Christ. This passage is meant to spur us on in our evangelism, in our witnessing, and in our missions. But now when God brings His people nigh unto Him, that saving work includes that He unites us all together. So that not only is there a vertical reconciliation, there is also a subsequent horizontal unity that follows from that. Considered the vertical element so far, now we come to that horizontal element that God's saving work involves the bringing together of all of His people into one body. And again, this is a tremendous blessing exactly because of the division and segregation that would otherwise exist. And Paul talks about that division specifically between the Jews and Gentiles here in this passage, especially in verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, For He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition. And Paul refers to the middle wall of partition. He is talking about a literal, physical wall that separated Jews from Gentiles in the temple in Jerusalem. 
at that temple, there were different courts. We can think of them as concentric squares. And while there were a number of different courts, for our purposes, we can simplify it down to two. There was the temple. Immediately surrounding the temple was a smaller court that was reserved for the Jews only. And then beyond that, there was a broader courtyard that was called the the court of the Gentiles because anyone and everyone was allowed into that courtyard. In between the two, there was a wall. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That wall is what he has in view when he speaks of the middle wall of partition that was meant to keep the Gentiles out. To keep them away from the Jews. And so insistent were the Jews on this that there was even an inscription on that wall that warned of death in no uncertain terms. If you are guilty of going through the gate of trying to get over this wall, you will be put to death and it will be your own fault. That's the middle wall of partition. But now Paul is really using that figuratively to refer to the hostility and the hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Yes, there was a physical, literal wall there in the temple, but there was much, much more dividing them. These two groups could not stand each other. There was mutual disdain between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews looked down upon the Gentiles as dogs. They viewed them as unclean to associate with a Gentile. You are going to become defiled on account of their uncleanness. But the attitude of the Gentiles toward the Jews was not much better. They viewed the Jews as a proud bunch. As a group of troublemakers. And there was constant back and forth. Mutual mudslinging between these two groups. All of this is to say there was division, segregation, enmity, strife, and fighting. And really, this is no surprise to us because we still see it today. That's where we began this sermon with the introduction. The division that we see all around us in the world. The division that makes its way into the church in harmony with that old man of sin within us. By nature, we hate the brother. And we show that hatred in different ways. But now again, all of that is really the dark background that makes this text so meaningful and so beautiful that as those who are reconciled to our God, we are now brought together as a people. So that there's a horizontal unity that now exists because of the saving work of Christ. And that's what Paul is referring to all throughout these verses. Verse 14, for example, for He is our peace who hath made both. Who's the both? Jews and Gentiles. He's made them both one. He's taken these two groups that were at odds with each other and He's made them one. He's unified them. He says, 
still further that he's broken down this middle wall of partition. And he's obviously not referring to the tearing down of that literal physical wall, but something far more astounding. He's removed the hatred. He's removed the hostility that that wall symbolized, that that wall pointed to. He goes on in verse 15 toward the end, for to make in himself of twain, again, Jews and Gentiles, one new man, so making peace. Verse 16, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. He makes these two different groups to be one body, harmonized together, united together. And Paul is referring to this again and again and again because it's so astounding to him that there could now be this unity where before there was only division, only segregation. And again, if we ask the question, how is any of this possible? It's because of the saving work of Christ. And that too is what Paul is getting at here in this passage. For example, if we back up to verse 15, how did he take down this middle wall of partition? Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And now admittedly, that's a a mouthful for us. When Paul speaks of the law of commandments contained in ordinances, he is talking about the Old Testament ceremonial laws. The very language he's using points us to that fact. Even the law. Which law? Of commandments contained in ordinances. Ah, the, the ceremonial laws. But now what's interesting is that he speaks of those as the occasion for enmity. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. What enmity? Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. How are we to understand that? Well, the idea is that those Old Testament ceremonial laws were a part of how God had distinguished the nation of Israel from all the other nations around them. This is a part of how God separated them and helped keep them distinct by giving them these ceremonial laws. You're going to live this way in distinction from all those other nations so that from a certain point of view, these Old Testament ceremonial laws were the occasion of enmity, at least in the sense of separation. They became truly the occasion for enmity in that the Jews foolishly began to emphasize the ceremonial law as though that's what makes you saved. You've got to be circumcised. You have to follow these dietary restrictions and then you can be saved. And if you're a Gentile on the outside, you think that's all foolish. That's silly. And thus you see where the enmity comes in on account of these ceremonial laws which in the Old Testament certainly served a good purpose of keeping God's people distinct But again, because of a a wrong emphasis on the ceremonial aspect of the law and law-keeping itself, they became the occasion for enmity. But now, all that's an explanation of the language. Let's now tie it back to the point we're making. How can these two groups who were at odds with each other be brought together? We said, only in and through Christ. Why? Because Christ abolished this. That's what we read. Verse 15, having abolished in His flesh the enmity that was there, He did away with them. 
And He did away with them. Notice those three important words. In His flesh. And in His flesh there is again pointing us to the cross where He laid down His life, the flesh and the blood that He had assumed to Himself in His incarnation. He abolished those Old Testament ceremonial laws because He fulfilled them. All the types in the shadows that make up those ceremonial laws find their realization in Jesus Christ. And because He's fulfilled them, their use has fallen away. And thus, Christ paved the way for that unity that He's talking about here in the text between that Paul's talking about here in the text between Jews and Gentiles. This comes out even more clearly that Christ is the one who establishes this unity. This comes out more clearly in verse 16. And that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. And here, we find language we're more familiar with. The language of the body of Christ. How we now have two different groups. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles who make up this one body that is the church of Christ. And notice, notice again the possibility of this. The ground for this is the saving work of Christ because He says that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. First it was in His flesh. Now it's by the cross. Because it's by the cross of Jesus Christ that He is now redeemed His elect body. He's made us His own and united us all together. Yes, we were chosen as the body of Christ in eternity, but it's by His saving work that we are truly brought together. And so it's only in and through Jesus Christ and His cross that we have this unity. That cross that was foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews is the basis for our unity as His people. And what all of this means is the horizontal unity is really the result of the vertical unity. You see, Paul speaks of us being brought nigh. That's the language in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And when trying to understand this passage, the question becomes, brought nigh to what? To whom? Well, there's two answers. First and foremost, brought nigh unto God. But having been brought nigh unto God, we are also now brought nigh unto one another. And the peace and reconciliation with God is the basis for the peace and reconciliation we now have with each other. And thus what this text is teaching us about the church is both its Catholicity and its unity at the same time. The church is Catholic. It's a universal church. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. God's people are gathered from throughout every nation, tribe, and tongue. And at the very same time, the church is one. We have a fundamental unity as those who are fellow members of the body of Christ. And what's so beautiful about that unity is that 
there's diversity within the unity that we have both at the same time. And again, that's true only because of the saving work of Christ. For you see, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power whereby that division and segregation that we've been talking about can be healed. We see division and segregation all around us in the world. And the world is ever attempting to do away with that. The world especially is concerned about racism at this time. But try as they might, they will never truly overcome it. Because as one commentator put it, quote, for the world torn by unrest and friction, the Gospel is the only answer. End quote. But now that applies not only to the world out there, it applies to the church in here. And the question for us tonight is, will we live in harmony with this passage of Scripture? Because there are differences among us. One difference that arises out of the text. Many of us grew up our whole lives in the church. Others of us came in from the outside. But that's just one example. There are many other natural differences. Differences in personality. Differences in demeanor. Differences in our interests and our hobbies. Differences in our income. And we could provide a long, long list of many differences that make us distinct, unique from one another. But are we not members of one body? And in that body, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. And that means those natural differences that we have ought never to change how we treat one another or interact as a congregation. So-and-so may be very different from you. But do not let those differences become a middle wall of partition that leads to segregation. For those differences are really a reflection of that diversity of the body of Christ. They are necessary and good differences because we're all different members of the body of Christ. And if, and if, and if we were all identical to each other, we would lose that diversity that's so important because within the body of Christ, we each have a different station. We each have a different calling. We each have a different place, a different way of serving. And all of those differences that make us unique as individuals are a part of that. So rather that, so that rather than despising the differences we see in the body of Christ, we're to rejoice in it. 
and to recognize that in spite of whatever natural differences may exist, there is a fundamental unity that we have in as members of the body of Christ. And our calling is to manifest that unity and to endeavor to keep it. And we're to do so out of thankfulness for the overall blessedness that is ours as those who are in Christ. Because this, does, this passage does tie into the overall blessedness. The theme that we've been using as we've made our way through this book is that Ephesians is all about the blessedness of the church of Christ. Paul established that theme early on when he spoke of the, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He elaborated on that statement in chapter 1, verses 4-14 through that grand doxology in which he exclaimed the riches of God's grace toward us. And even, when he, even now that we've come to chapter 2, we have not all of a sudden dropped that idea of the blessedness of the church of Christ because we've seen that as those who are in Christ, we've been quickened and raised together and made to sit together with hev- in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We've seen the blessedness of being saved by grace alone through faith alone. And is this not also a part of that blessedness? Reconciled unto God. At peace with Him and thus at peace with each other. But now the only way we will ever appreciate this is if we see and remember what it was like without Christ or what it would be like without Christ. And that's what Paul wants to set before us and before the Ephesians in setting up this contrast that he's been that we've been talking about this evening. And that we're meant to see that comes out in verse 11, the very first verse of the passage we're considering. How does it begin? Wherefore, remember. You Gentile Christians in Ephesus, remember what you were. Keep that in mind. Don't lose sight of that. And we ask Paul, why is it so important that we remember that past misery, that past wretchedness? So that you at the same time remember the astounding riches of God's grace to you in Christ Jesus. Because it's only when we remember that we too, from a spiritual point of view, were Christless, churchless, friendless, hopeless, and godless, that we will be overwhelmed with the good news of the Gospel. It's only when we recognize the division, the segregation, the strife, the enmity that would otherwise exist that we will be amazed at the unity that we have in Christ. That's why Paul calls us to remember our sinful past and our 
prior wretched condition. Because we'll never feel the magnitude of the benefit until we see the magnitude of our misery. And what is more, Paul would have us to remember so that we see that it's only in and through Christ that we have all this. Did you notice how much Paul emphasizes Christ in this passage? We've brought it up to be sure. We've explained the language. But how many times does He go on pointing us back to our Savior, back to the cross? Notice that now briefly. Let's just read through this passage beginning at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, He starts the contrast by reminding us of our union to Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He points us right to the cross. He's not finished. For He, Christ, is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh, let's not lose sight of the cross, the enmity, even the law of commandments or contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace that He might reconcile both unto God in one body, His own body, the body of Christ. By what? By the cross of Christ, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through Him, through Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. I did not count how many times But Paul cannot help but repeat it again and again and again. It's only in and through Christ. In case you ever thought you were the one who could reconcile yourself back to God. In case you ever thought you were the one who could bring about peace and unity in the church. Remember. Remember. It's in and through Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, blessed be thy name. Thou who art the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank and praise thee for this good news that we have heard that in and through Christ we have peace both with Thee and with each other as those who are washed in the blood of our Savior. Father, fill our hearts with gratitude. Fill our hearts with praise so that we never cease to exclaim out of gratitude the glory of Thee our God and the unspeakable riches of Thy grace in and toward us in and through Jesus Christ. Hear this prayer for His sake. Amen.